Star Podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watched our game and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, cause we have nothing better to do so listen here's our show hello and welcome to probing the wormhole a stargate discussion podcast i am samantha i'm a super fan of stargate and i'm here with rose another super fan of all things stargate and malika who is a super fan after this episode maybe not the next episode (laughs) all right that's that's we're getting there it's the first time you've officially identified yourself as a fan of any kind. So that's great. So yeah. today we will be discussing The Knox, episode seven, season one of SG-1. Okay, so we start off the episode in the control room. And there's some dude from the government here to observe. And I think he's supposed to be the Secretary of Defense. And uh, though he's amazed at the Stargate, all the, the twinkling lights, He's not really happy with the lack of weapons coming from the Stargate project. So I thought this was interesting because it, it's really the first time we introduce politics into the show. Like, and it, it does seem a little bit disjointed. Like in the previous episode, I think it was episode four, where Daniel makes the case of why they should be going to these planets for cultural exploration, not just to win their war. And the president's like, or Hammond's like the president agrees with you. And then all of a sudden we're not happy because we don't have enough stuff and we might shut down the program. So you're starting to get the politics bleed in and it impacts, you know, I think the point here was it impacts how they went on their next next mission. They were like specifically trying to get some fancy technology. They've been on 19 missions so far. So some time has passed since that, that other episode and they still haven't brought anything back that's worthwhile. Didn't Daniel find something in one of the, previous episodes he there was some medication that they were able that he found so they found one thing (laughs) they found one thing but no weapons i think is the secretary's point Mm -hmm. exactly why weren't teal and daniel dressed up because uh everyone else well everyone who's uh in the air force is in their dress blues which makes sense but Teal'c and, and Daniel weren't in, I don't know, like sports coats or something. They were in their, their mission uniforms. I don't know that Teal'c has any other outfits at this point. Right. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess they haven't released him to go shopping yet. Knowing what I know about Daniel, the dude does not have a suit. He might have a tan suede jacket with elbow patches, um, but he doesn't have like a matching suit. He definitely has that. But yeah. I mean, if I was meeting the secretary of whatever, I'm pretty sure I'd be dressed formally. Yes, a sports coat, at least. With patches, if you're doing sure. Patches. First, let's talk about this world. It okay. is very wet. I have the, the Blu-ray version, and I, and I watched the Blu-ray version. You can see the, the rivulets of water just run off of Tilk's face. Oh, really? You can't oh, see yeah. that on the Netflix version. I didn't know you can't it take my word for it it's a very wet world and at one point I think Carter her hair was just plastered to her face well this is what this is like around Vancouver right which I think has like similar weather to Seattle because it's right just north of Seattle so I would imagine it's raining a lot 
but that i mean it works though because these people are like forest fairies right like wicker people <laughs> so the wetness behooves the the location and the people uh, and then suddenly the stargate disappears <gasps> it's like it's invisible i know <laughs> oh no what are they gonna do uh, this is when they decide to split into two teams to go and try to find the Stargate and to go try and find this invisible creature. So the invisible creatures, they're sort of the teaser, right? They're like, oh, also, you got to wonder why didn't Teal, men Teal mention that earlier? And I think Jack like quips about that. But like all of a sudden we're, we have this like great potential resource that is only just being mentioned now. Um, but they end up really not being at all like relevant in the show. I was a little disappointed how they really talked up these hummingbirds, these hovering entities that were like hum hummingbirds and then tilks like with teeth. And then we don't really see them that much. We only see them two, I think two or three times. And they look actually like hummingbirds slash scorpions. So I was, I was a little sad that we didn't pursue. Yeah, they're kind of like a non- a non-issue by the end of the episode. Yeah. Okay, well, while they're trying to find this uh, hummingbird, they discover that Apophis and his Jaffa are also here as well. So that kind of changes things. And uh, they decide that they're gonna try to go after Apophis. Do you think they should have uh, done that or maybe rethought the plan? I think it was a very, very bad plan. <laughs> Why do you think that, Rose? <laughs> Because they die. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but also, I just can't. Like, I, so, okay. They see Apophis and the Jaffa. Daniel's the one that's like, we got to go. We got to go. We got to get them. Can't miss this opportunity. And O'Neill and Carter are like, what the hell are you talking about? We're completely not equipped to do that. And, and they ultimately acquiesce. And I just, I feel like O'Neill should have been like, no, Daniel, we are not going to go after very well armed Jaffa and a Gould with nothing but tranquilizer darts, no support. And no plan, like, sorry. <laughs> and let's have a deal with him being mad about it. Yeah. And I also wanted to, like, so Daniel has this commitment to finding Sheree. That's his whole reason for being there. And I'm, I do find that his commitment is a little inconsistent. Like, in this case, he, it was so necessary that they go after Apophis, even with ill-equipped, because they can't let this chance pass and yet he's always the one that wants to like hang around and do everything <laughs> like on the, you know, when they were on the Broca divide, there's no gold, there's no charade, but let's sit and like talk to these people forever and make be best friends and on emancipation, let's, you know, no gold, no charade, lots of people, lots of red flags that maybe they should get the hell out of Dodge. And he's like, no, let's sit and talk and make friends. Um, so that fire under his ass really comes and goes <laughs> in terms of finding his wife. After everybody is murdered, except for Tilk, who says what I think is his whole basis for why he's in the program is I die free. I thought that that was really an important, important statement. It also is kind of his sums up his philosophy of where he is now, that he will no longer be a slave to the gold. First of all, I thought Shilk Nemron was I die free. And that's not what he said here. So maybe there's multiple ways to say it. I don't know. But the whole I die free is like a repeating like free Jaffa thing that goes throughout the show. But yeah, I thought it was Shell Kick number. 
So our people wake up in a hut. Carter spent way too much time feeling O'Neill's wound or lack of wound. I was wondering if if one of you guys was going to say something about here's a mini shipper corner with Carter delicately massaging O'Neill's back for a very long time. So you noticed that too, Malika. I did. I notice it. I'm going to go back and, and watch it again. Oh, you should. You should. It was like a, a solid five seconds. Not like I'm going to check to see if you have a wound. This was like, I'm going to actively massage you. Although to be fair, Daniel sort of did the same thing with Carter. Like he left his hand in that hole for quite some time after she woke up. I do think Dan, at least in the first season, Daniel has like a secret crush on Carter that he won't admit to himself because he's in love with his wife. Right. But there are lots of things that make me think that. You don't blame him because Carter is absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. She's the smartest one in the bunch. By far. Actually, one of my favorite things about SG-1 is the reveal of the inhabitants of whatever planet. Like I am always looking forward to what kind of freaks are we going to see? And am I going to connect with them? Am I going to like them? And these ones did not disappoint. I felt forest fairies wearing wicker headdresses. It, it very much felt to me like hippies in the woods, like literally not just leaves, but they had full on branches coming out of their head. It was awesome. I loved it. I loved it. But, you know, thinking about what you said, Sam, about how it was so wet there, I don't think that you're supposed to have wicker exposed to that much water. <laughs> it, it seems to be corrosive, but they were wearing it. It, it looked good. I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> they did seem to have a very like at one with the forest kind of, you know, it's like they, they clearly were thinking like hippie flower children approach like also with the music we were talking about this ephemeral music they like sort of scamper out of the forest and do little forest creaturey things and I think they hit the nail on the head with with that if they were trying to go for that then they they succeeded but they're a little bit hard to figure out and I kind of like that you don't really get the full picture until the end of the episode of who they are and what they're about their philosophy is exactly like somebody who follows fish in a van so I really I really like them Totally. Or like deadheads. I totally get that impression. Exactly. Like if deadheads didn't do so much drugs and put their mental powers to some good use, this is what they would get. Yeah. So Ofer leads them out of the hut. They, uh, they finally reconnect with uh, Teal'c. And this is when we meet Quark. So before we gloss over this, that's a Star Trek dude, right? Yes. <laughs> So Armin Shimmerman, the actor who plays that guy, and and his name starts with an A in this episode, and I can't, it's like Artemis or something like that. He is Quark from Deep Space Nine, the Ferengi bar owner, who is fantastic. That he is, he was so good in Deep Space Nine. So every time I see him, that's the only name that comes to my mind. And also for you, Malika, he's uh, Principal Snyder from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh yeah, okay. I, 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 many seasons towards the end I cried my eyes out at Buffy I was a diehard Buffy fan but when I saw him I didn't think of Buffy I thought of Star Trek and I don't even never even watch Star Trek so that's how good Cork is he is is. (laughs) and I met him at a convention and I have his autograph him and Rom they both signed the same picture (laughs) that's very exciting it's on my it's on my um 
well somewhere i don't know who rom is rom is another ferengi who's his brother on deep space nine that was the alien they played ferengi okay nerd (laughs) (laughs) you call us nerds yes i mean we're making a stargate podcast i think that's just a given and welcome to the club malika i'm a nerd i'm just not a nerd about star trek i got my other nerd yeah well since we're dropping our star interactions as you two know i am best friends with mitch pelegi is it pelegi or pelegi pelegi whatever you know i I just call him mitch i know you guys are really close you're on first name basis (laughs) yes i he took a picture with me once and weren't you like caressing his finger or something in this picture you know one of these days if if we get to 100 followers uh subscribers i will post that picture of us together i am extremely happy and i'm holding two of his fingers kind of inappropriately but he seems to be into it so maybe he'll come on our show one time and we can you, you guys could be reunited as the true loves of each other that you are. I'm sure he'll remember me. So I can see why O'Neill thought these people were primitive. There's something very infantile about, about Quark, especially when he's trying to throw them that tomato, apple, fruit thing. He was having way too much fun throwing fruit. Yeah, and I love that they're just eating fruit. It's very forest creaturey. Very hippie. It's like... <laughs> We were vegans before vegans. Before it was cool. Yeah, they're definitely vegans, I would say. Yeah. If they're like hiding animals from the gold, they're not going to eat them. And I think this is when Quark, or this is when they finally start to talk. And you first hear uh, something from the, the Nefreyu, who's the kid. And we get that that really cute line from O'Neill that she can't keep him. Yeah, and I thought it's interesting. They they sort of are setting up Sam to be this very maternal figure. I mean, do we think it's just because she's the only woman there or is that just sort of naturally Sam's character? But you, don't you think that, and I agree with you, uh, Rose, that it could be interpreted as uh, lazy sexist writing, but also it makes her have some humanity because she is so smart. She's all about science. She has the answer for everything. And she's all, almost always right. And this kind of gives her, you know, I'm also a person and not just a caring person, but, you know, in the other, in the other episode where it ha- had her former fiance, it made her kind of a broken person. And this shows her humanity. So yes, it's lazy, sexist writing, but it also, I like it. I think it is because yeah. she is the, the female character on the show. You know, it's so, I, I love Amanda Tapping. I will never say a bad word about her. I think everything she does is just incredible. Um, and, and, I, and I think one of the challenges with the show is that her character, all of them really, but especially Sam, because it was so male dominated in the, in the writing and producing, they write her in a very like sort of not really, like, not lazy, not really stereotypical, but like, I don't know, in a way that doesn't feel that natural. And she, she makes the character feel much more three-dimensional through her choices. And I think that this is one example, like I kind of want to be pissed off that they're like, oh, of course the woman is going to have to like be this mothery, I love kids person. But I, but I think it also makes her much more of a human character. So I kind of want to be pissed off about it, but I'm not. And this is also when uh, Quark starts to speak as well. And 
So my question is, why didn't Cork at this point tell them, hey, we can take care of ourselves. We have this floating city. We're fine. Uh, please leave. Why didn't they just reveal what they had right right then? A real, a real short episode. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. I mean, that, that's the, that's the actual answer, but, but still, if you let's, let's put ourselves into this episode and just think, what were the writers <laughs> thinking? Why, why did the Knox not tell them, uh, right? When they saw them, we can take care of ourselves. We can disappear everything. I mean, we, we got to talk about that too later on, but, but still, this is the point where Cork points to his floating mushroom city and says, we're fine. We, we can handle this. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, my impression is that they, their, their power or their, um, their safety is dependent on their, on their presenting themselves as not threatening, right? They're all about hiding. And so I, I think they only reveal themselves when necessary. And I, I would think, I think the end reveal is more, was more about a gesture of friendship. Like they didn't have to, they could have just said leave and let Eshuan think that they were, would be massacred. But I think they did as a because it was a gesture of trust and friendship. Also, I think that most Wicker fit for fairies would want you to discover the moral of being kind and not being so violent. They want you to come to that on your own, right? So I think that's why they were so open, not revealing their mushroom city, but they wanted O'Neill to see that his ways were wrong. And if you're like, we're fine, look what we can do, go away. Then he hasn't learned his, the moral of the episode, right? So, so they're like kindergarten teachers. They are. <laughs> and SG1 is the kindergartner. <laughs> yes. O'Neill is the problem child. <laughs> so are you a true pacifist if you have all that power to disappear your, your world, yourself? Is that true pacifism? Yeah, it's interesting because in some ways, you know, I really do like this episode because I think it does create some interesting questions, right? Though they have this really uncompromising pacifist approach. Like you do not kill other people. You do not harm them. If you kill them, even if they're your enemy, they're going to save them, even if it makes them vulnerable. And it doesn't seem to have any exceptions, right? But the only way they presumably haven't been destroyed is because they have this technological power. And one is how is that power, first of all, enough to protect them if they won't use it? And is that really pacifism if, if you're allowing yourself to, if your way of life is existing under threat of use of using power to protect it, right? Is that really pacifism? Right. And what's, so what's to stop the Gaul from coming and bombing this, this planet? What if they develop some kind of planet destroying technology and they just destroyed this entire planet. I, are they able to disappear the planet as well? Yeah, I mean, it, this brings up a whole range of questions. Like, okay, so so at the end you realize they have this invisible fleshing, fle floating mushroom city. <laughs> I think the implication is that they have therefore a lot of technological power. That's what I'm, I don't know how, maybe they just have a floating mushroom city that <laughs> Can make itself invisible, which doesn't seem to be able to do that much, right? If the ghouls come and try to kill you, then what are you just going <laughs> to float the city around the planet? <laughs> Throw mushrooms at them. <laughs> or just like keep moving it so they can't find, like, 
the way that, especially Teal'c says here, the ghoul need to possess things. If they can't possess it, they destroy it. That seems clear, okay? They're not gonna be able to possess this invisible technology. Now that they know that it's the Nox that do it and not the, the animals. So they will try to possess it. And when they fail, they're going to destroy them. So how is that not gonna happen? Right? They have to have some, their ability to protect themselves must encompass the whole planet, but, it's, but if it's only defensive, I don't see how that's enough. Like yeah, they they're not going to shoot down Gould ships, right? They're not going to engage in a war. So it's like, they just wait for the Gould to come to them, wait for them to get shot at, and then maybe have a really good shield and that's it forever. They could relocate. I, I could see them doing that. But then they leave the animals alone. We'll take the animals with them. They can do that. <laughs> have me burn no, they seem so connected to their forest. I don't know if they could just up and leave. Apparently there are a lot of forested planets <laughs> around. They can find one. That's true. What did you think about Apophis's uniform or his shiny gold uniform? Doesn't seem very uh, camouflagey. Maybe that's why they haven't been successful at hunting these animals. <laughs> Between the gold uniform and the like Jaffa, like the way they stomp through things, like you can always hear Jaffa coming. They don't do stealth at all. Well, it's all that metal. I know, get themselves some BDUs or something. What's that? What's the BDU? I, I don't know, actually. I was oh, battle dress them. uniform. It's like oh. the, the more like informal uniforms that they wear. At some point, I Shackle should... does wake up and uh, Teal'c tries to talk to him. So do you think that Teal'c uh, had always planned to try to persuade more Jaffa to join him? Or do you think this is just something he decided right right here now um i i think that he has realized that the choice he made was correct to leave the gold and so i think that this is not what he expected to do but this is kind of what he has in his heart like we can be free um this is a better life we can be better people because of this and so when the opportunity arises, he thinks that he might as well put it into practice and see if he could get his old buddy on board, which of course doesn't work. And he's seen as a traitor. Yeah, I like, I, you know, I think when he first joined SG-1, it was an impulse of like, wow, these people can, it was more about saving the people in front of him. And he felt like they would be able to do that. And they did. And so I think, you know, Teal'c's journey is interesting. Like, I think at the initial point, it was, I, I can save these people now. And then they did. And then he was like, I think resigned himself to being captured and killed because he's like, I have nowhere to go. And then O'Neill invited him to join them. And so I don't know that he had a grand plan to like form a free Jaffa nation, but I think that the idea that, wait, maybe they're more like me is starting to form. And this is his first opportunity to try to convince someone to join him. I do think he needs to work on his recruitment speech though. Yes, it does not go well. <laughs> he didn't try that hard either. I didn't. <laughs> He's like, join me or I'll kill you, basically. <laughs> yeah. Or you, sorry, you won't live to see the free Jafar because you'll be dead. And then we find out that it's not the Fenry who can conceal themselves. It's the Nox who are doing it. And that kind of changes things for SG-1. Right. So their original mission is out the window. So we're kind of back to square one with that. Like, okay, so there's not invisible creatures. So they're going to come back empty handed and they're going to be in trouble again. So that problem was not solved. <laughs> And by the way, they also alienated a very, very powerful race that they could have been friends with. Oops. <laughs> by not listening. 
So an Ofer, set, Ofer tells Daniel that the Ga'uld have been uh, coming to their planet for a long time to hunt the Fenri. So the Nox have been doing this successfully for quite some time. But the, but but this episode changes everything. How do you mean? Does, yeah. Because now, now the ghoul know that they're there and that they're the ones with the disappearing power. And so I think they don't really address this, but I think it would completely change how the ghoul, they're going to approach that planet. I, I can't imagine why they wouldn't attack it with a whole bunch of motherships. So Shackle attacks Teal'c, shanks him, as you said. Mm-hmm. And what does he do to the Nox woman? I, I w- it was a little unclear. He kills her, I think, because they revive her. Okay. So these Nox people or not people, these Nox can be harmed or they can be killed. They're not uh, invulnerable. Yeah, because she she gets revived and then the kid also is harmed and has to be, I don't know if he was killed or just harmed, but he had to be, he had to be, have the healing ritual on him. You'd have to have other Nox. So if they did, if the ghoul did come and kill everybody on the mushroom spaceship, potentially everybody, if, if that's the only spaceship, which we don't even know. But if they killed them all, then there'd be nobody to do the healing ritual. So their whole race would be gone, right? And it must take something out of them, right? They're using energy to cure their their uh, their friends, but they, but they don't seem to be depleted at the end. Yeah, it well, makes them visible. That's the only thing. Right. right. Mm-hmm. It, I was a little unclear as to why Shackle came back. I think it was to get intel. Maybe he anticipates Apophis telling him to go back and get intel. Right. Like, um, I mean, the, the whole reason why they're there is to find out what makes these hummingbirds with teeth have in powers of invisibility. So he wakes up in a hut. He's had contact with Tilk and he's had contact with the forest lady, but he doesn't know that it's actually the forest lady and the rest of the knots that have these powers. So I would think that hit escape was number one, number two was intel. So it makes sense, I think, him running away and then coming back to, to watch and find out so that he can take that information to Apophis. And Apophis doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that's gonna be like happy to see him. I think he's gonna be like, dude, what the fuck, you got captured. And like, I think he may think that he needs to come back with something in order to make up for the fact that he was captured. Yeah, I agree. But he didn't have to hit that leaf. Remember when he was running and he was like this random explosion of greenery because he like smacked it really hard. Like, calm down, dude. You got away. <laughs> no reason to hurt the forest. What I what I wanted to to discuss with you guys about Shackle was Tilk knows what those uniforms have, so he knew that Shane uh, that. Shackle had a shank. That's what I'm trying to say. Issue. Right, right. And then why would you bind your the the person's hands in rope? I mean, I'm sure that's all they had, but it's kind of like, well, if you have a knife in your in your glove, it seems I don't know. He didn't pat search him beforehand. <laughs> what do you guys think about this healing ceremony? So you can bring back dead people. Like I wonder if there's a limit on how long they have to be they can be dead for. They have to be pretty fresh, I would think. I would think so. Well, but that's my question. Are they dead? I mean, SG-1 was dead, right? They all said they were dead. And then I don't know if the if, like the woman was dead and the kid was dead or if they were just sort of gravely injured, but SG-1 was like dead, but not like for a long time. So maybe you have to like immediately get them before they you know decompose and stuff. But 
we don't know. Maybe the Nox can reverse decomposition. Who knows? They could be that powerful, right? You, you eat your all your veggies and fruits for the day, and you have the power of resurrection. <laughs> so do you think the Nox live in the forest or do they live in the floating city? And they just go to the forest as a ruse when people come. I think they split their time. <laughs> it's like their summer house. <laughs> That's right. I mean, they had, you know, they had developed huts and they had the altar to, to heal people. So they had, they had infrastructure, <laughs> which this country doesn't, but they're not <laughs> too. And I, so I think that they split their time between the two. And there might be other like little enclaves of Knox spread around. Yeah, because we don't see any other Knox. So right. like, is, are, is it just some people choose to live in the forest and some people live in the city? Urban versus uh, suburban. <laughs> it's like the red state part of the Knox home world. <laughs> red state versus blue state, yeah. Well, our SG1 is concerned that they, their presence is now putting these people in danger. I think this is a great example of I don't know if it's SG-1 arrogance or just U.S. military arrogance on display, but there's no question in their minds that these people are the weaker of them, that they need to be protected, even when they're telling them they don't need to be protected, and that SG-1 knows better than they do about what they need. And even from Daniel, who's not, you know, who's supposed to be the more enlightened one here, they all just make these assumptions um, and I thought the show really did a really good job of showing how they're making, like, and you're kind of going along with them. Like you, at no point really until the end, are you like, no SG1, you're kind of not doing it right. You know, like you kind of like agree, like, yeah, they're in danger. We have to protect them. And you kind of going along with them. But yeah, I thought that was a really, they, they really were arrogant in their approach to this. Yeah. I, I went to GateWorld and looked at the comments to this episode. A lot of viewers do not like the Knox. Really? Oh, I yeah. do not like the Knox. Why not? The wicker. What about the Wicker? It's no Wicker was not mentioned. <laughs> uh, but people just had a problem with the whole fake or or the yeah the fake pacifist attitude that they had. They were uh, on SG One's side even uh, to the end when they showed them the uh, the floating city. I mean, to me, it's like they're both very arrogant, but in very different ways. Like the Knox are arrogant in the sense that they think. They're older and wiser and know right and have this, you know, that they kind of have the luxury of having this pacifist attitude when they don't really have to make that choice. Whereas SUN doesn't, they don't have a world that could withstand a gold attack. They have to be more aggressive in their approach. Um, and so I actually find them both equally arrogant in this. And it's, but I, but it, you know, up until this point, SUN has always been the unequivocal hero. Uh, or presented as an unequivocal hero. And in this episode, they're not. And I, I like that. they're not human right so so is this the first time we meet well other than the blue penis crystals this is the, fir the first time we meet a humanoid alien race that's completely not human right so there's the gould which are you know half human because they take human hosts but we haven't seen not other alien races right am i missing one but you question how they reproduce <laughs> i think the max get it on Yes, thank you. <laughs> I wanted to say that, but I wanted to also sound very professional. Yes. I think it's a very lovey-dovey experience for them. Like they're on ecstasy? Yes, I think they're on ecstasy. <laughs> that's exactly how it would be. Yeah, that's, 
mushrooms? Ecstasy is kind of a chemical, right? Like a, you have to make ecstasy in a lab, but you can get mushrooms out from of their mushroom city. That's why, it's right. That's why it's made of mushrooms. <laughs> but I definitely see them very psychedelic. I, I, I can get on board with that. Can we assume that there's like no rape in this and no crime in this culture that like, because every, is everyone like this? Is, is there no such thing as criminal punishment or people that do violent things? Among Probably. themselves, no. I mean, O'Neill and the Kaul definitely bring it in this episode. It's like violence, violence, violence. Let's kill your kid. Let's kill your lady. Let's kill three strangers to your planet. And then let's go and try to kill the Gaulds. So I, I think that there's probably very low crime rate. <laughs> there's no like, there's no like lawyers in that society. Just fruit pickers. <laughs> fruit pickers. Well, and plumbers, you always need a plumber, no matter what you are. I think this is also where you get the really good line. Uh, the very young do not always do what they are told. And that's from Quark with ref in reference to Nefreyu. Yeah, I like that line, but I also kind of arrogant to like treat grown people as the very young. I mean, they're young, literally, in comparison. But still. Yeah, I was going to say, because the guy's like over 400, right? <laughs> Everybody's young compared to that old yeah. dude. Before we move off the killing, or at least the injury to the child, can we just mark this up as O'Neill getting another kid killed? This is his number two of Ouch. kids that he, <laughs> that he has some hand in murdering. Well, I don't think it's, well, okay. I don't think it's clear that Nefreyu is dead and he certainly doesn't stay dead but i do think that's a good point too i think o'neill would be very triggered by by seeing the kid injured or knowing that the kid injured was injured especially because the kid was following him i mean i don't think it was his fault that the kid got hurt but considering how his son died i would think that he would have some kind of trauma ptsd re response to that and he doesn't seem to not at all the Knox. Uh, conduct their healing ceremony on Nefreyu and Apophis and his group do attack uh, and Jack tries to uh, shoot Apophis with the bow and arrow but Apophis then disappears and Jack is mad again. Which I understand. I understand where the Nox is coming from. They don't want any more violence. They don't want any more killing but I also understand that O'Neill's whole reason, well one of the reasons to kill Apophis is because Apophis will come back and kill the Nox eventually. He is a danger to this race. He's also a danger to SG-1. So here he had the opportunity to take wipe out this danger and the Nox took that away. So I can understand, I, I would be really mad at the hippies if they did something like that to me. Well, and this is another example of like, are the Nox sort of just not recognizing their privilege here? like. Okay, so maybe their whole thing is you can't kill anybody. We won't let you all that. But as soon as they leave that planet, Apophis is a really bad guy who kills a lot of people and enslaves a lot of people. And are they doing more harm by allowing him to leave when they don't have to really deal with the consequences of that? They got their shield. They got their, their floating city. They're good. Um, but are they just inflicting an unequivocally bad actor on the rest of the, the universe, the rest of the galaxy? You know, and that's, that's sort of the issues with pacifism. You know, that's what you have. That's what Warhawks are always saying. Like, you got to go and bomb a few people to make sure that a lot more people don't die. And, and it's a really tough question if you have the right to do that. Yep. 
I think that is a, a much bigger question than <laughs> this podcast or this episode can yeah. really address. They meet again at the Stargate. Cork uh, appears and reveals that Nefreyu is fine. They were able to hear, heal them. Uh, they sent Apophis and his group back to the Stargate. And this is when Cork reveals that they have their, their floating city. So one thing I do like about this episode is the way that we are sort of brought along with SG-1. Like, I feel like we're being taught the lesson along with them. And in a way that doesn't feel condescending. I don't know. I think some people might find this episode condescending, but I don't. I find it actually well done. I think it, I think the assumption is that most people don't like war and don't like fighting and think that the military is too quick to to jump to action. But here you really do understand what you're like, you're like, yeah, they're, they are in danger and these are bad guys. Like it's sort of unambiguous in this episode who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. So there isn't that same moral qualm about using violence. And yet at the end, we're faced with this idea that we were really wrong this whole episode about what we thought should happen and the bad guys didn't end up getting hurt. Uh, and they also say that they're going to bury their Stargate, which means SG-1 has uh, lost the chance really to become further friends with the Nox. So why would they bury their Stargate? I don't, are, are they like isolationists? I think so. You just think they just stay by, there? Yeah, it's, I, I, simply by their nature of we're just going to become invisible and hide when there's danger kind of speaks to we are isolationists, right? And I I mean, being anti-violence the way that they are, I would think that, and not becoming cynical, you would have to hide. You'd have to stay away from other cultures and other beings, else your philosophy on life can't continue. Because being being a hippie doesn't work in the real world. <laughs> you got to get a job. You can't live in an RV, in a VW bus. And follow fish, right? Right. And don't get me wrong. I absolutely love hippies. I love them. And I lo- really like this episode. I love the for the wicker forest fairies. But I think that the more you interact with people, the more cynical you become. And maybe I- this is them. Maybe they've been they, their history as a culture have made them into isolationists. We don't know. I mean, but presumably this is a very old culture with very old people. And so maybe at some point they're like, hey, let's just hang out here because not nothing out there that we need to do right now. So this is the point where we uh, give a rating to the episode. And uh, Rose, what? how would you rate this episode? I'm going to say five chevrons. I like this episode. I think there's some plot holes, but I like the episode overall. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good one that I get excited about on rewatch. Okay, so I would give this five chevrons. Uh, I uh, appreciate the look of the Knox. I like Armin Shimmerman always as Quark, or also as the Knox head Knox in this episode. Uh, I didn't like the uh, the showing at the end of the Mushroom City. I, I, plot wise, I understand why, but I, I couldn't make sense of why they did it at the end. Why not do it in the middle of the episode? So, what about you, Malika? I too would give it five chevrons. Because um, I really like hippies a lot. And I love fairies. And I actually do like wicker. So it was like my f- three favorite things all came together in this great episode. And I, there were plot holes, but 
they weren't as glaring. And it also raised a lot of questions about our humanity and what we believe in and a way to look at our civilization differently and with less violence. So I, I kind of, I like the moral here. So yeah, me too. this is one of the higher episodes for me. So how would you, if you saw this episode or if this episode was made today, how would it be different? I would think that Mushroom City is a hell of a lot more impressive with the special effects available today because I did not, like, I think it was supposed to be this big reveal of like their vast power. And I didn't quite see, I was like, okay, so you have a floating invisible city. I don't get how that means that you were like invincible now. Um, so I would think it would have been like way cooler on, on today's tech level. I agree. I think that the special effects would have been much better, not just the, the mushroom city, but also what about the hummingbirds? I mean, literally it looked like pencil drawings and we only see them two or three times and only for a second. And I think that that was wasted. However, I, I did appreciate the set dressing and the costumes in this one. And so I would hope that if it was made today, that we would keep that. Yeah, I think the message would be the same today because it's a very relevant message. The young uh, don't always do what they are told, but I think the special effects would be much better. And the only reason why I call it a mushroom city is because I have the Blu-ray version and it looks like a mushroom where it probably looked like just a smudge for you guys on the Netflix. Yeah. And it looked like, a, I mean, it, lo- it was, it looked like it was drawn, like, you know, they have a, a shot of the sky and they just like shoved in a drawing of a city in the corner. Like it didn't look big. It didn't look impressive. It didn't look powerful. It was just kind of there. So, and, and the reaction of SG one was much more impressed. So I would, I think it was intended to be really impressive. Do you think the message of the episode would still be the same today? I think so. I think I so. hope so. Like, I feel like everything today has to be so dark and complicated. Like that's just, especially sci-fi. It's all, it's all like these long story arcs wrestling with complicated themes, which has its place. But I, I do like the simplicity of this and like almost the innocence, the innocence of the Knox. And I don't know that that wouldn't make it on TV today. The next episode is episode eight, which is called Brief Candle. So we shall see you next week. Bye. 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 Floating Mushroom City. Like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. If you don't like us, still like and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Probing the Wormhole, on Twitter at Probing Wormhole, Facebook at Probing the Wormhole. You can also contact us on our website at probingthewormhole.com. Thank you.